Hello and welcome to episode 58 of the Classic Lenses podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm hosting this podcast from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Carl can't be with us again this week, but we do have Johnny Sisson in Chicago, Illinois. Hello, Johnny. Hello, Carl's apparently golfing with the um, the orange president again today, so uh, we, we don't have Carl with us. Carl, uh, what, do they, what do they say when you're golfing, not like break a leg or something? There's probably some saying like that, right? <laughs> hole in one, Carl. Hole in one. In the hole. In the hole. It's in the hole. That's it. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There we um, go. I think he's. I think he's actually out professoring or something like that. Oh, so, talk, he's talking about algae somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, so hopefully, <laughs> Doctor Algae. Yeah. Hopefully, one day he will be back. Um, hopefully, we'll see. That's it. Well, um, before we get going, oh. uh, <laughs> uh, last week uh, we had no other, none other than Linda Booth of Londinian Cameras with us, and we discussed amongst many things uh, things like uh, fungus and other lens repair related issues and I just want to thank Lyndon for being a great guest and uh, and also for his contributions in the uh, discussion uh, with the, uh, the with the podcast notes in photography with classic lenses in the, in the Facebook group um, some interesting stuff in there there lots of talk about uh, hydrogen peroxide and uh, and things like yeah. that so uh, um, okay, so uh, no Carl this week, and no, I guess, no Carl. No, no. Jeez. So, how about yeah. we 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 start with some emails, Johnny? How about that? I have to complain about the cold. Come on, I thought I was going to get to complain about the cold first. Is it cold out there, Johnny? It's cold. It's cold, Simon. Yeah, it's cold here. I don't know where Carl is. It's probably warm where he is, but it's cold here. And I just for the record. I got up before the podcast. Now, usually, folks, you know that I just roll out of the friggin' bed and do the podcast. But no, I was out of cream for my coffee. So um, I had had to make a trip out on the bicycle to the grocery store to get get cream for the coffee. And I will have you know that it is – I would do this temperature in both Fahrenheit and Celsius because I went to the trouble of finding it in both formats. So it is it is two degrees out Fahrenheit minus eighteen Celsius, with a wind chill of minus twenty five Celsius. I'm gonna just say it in Celsius because it sounds better. Um, so I got my friggin' coffee. I've had my caffeine. I can do the podcast, and I'm I'm so dedicated to being caffeinated for this podcast. I just wanted Simon to recognize how dedicated I am. <laughs> Well, well, th- I think the, on behalf of everybody that listens to the podcast, well, well done. All right, there. thank you, thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, so, so um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, we're gonna dive right into the email. Is that the plan? Yeah, let's go for that. Okay, so we have a email from oh, even an easy to do name, I believe, uh, Perry G, uh, who is writing to us from Hong Kong, and he says podcast idea classic lenses in hong kong so he says hey classic lens beams uh my name is perry g longtime listener to the podcast and member of the facebook group i have an idea for a podcast if you guys are interested in a guest from the far east i'd love to chat with you on the podcast about the classic lens market in hong kong so we got this email on thursday and of course simon and me are scratching our heads thinking what the we gonna do in the podcast this week, right? Um, as we do every week about midweek. And this email pops in, and we're reading through this, and we're like, "This is brilliant!" <laughs> so, um, so we went ahead and invited Perry on, and uh, I believe you're here with us on the line, aren't you, Perry? Hello, hey guys. Hey, did I say your last name right, Perry G? Yeah, that's, I hope that's so. It's only two letters, so 
I hope I couldn't yeah, screw I, that I, one I up. I clarified the pronunciation in the email because <laughs> oh, everyone <laughs> gets that wrong. Do they really? Yeah. For real? Yeah. Really? Well, because yeah, it's a it's a anglicized form of a, a Chinese character, and so uh, it's, okay. it's not yeah. even the correct pronunciation. Okay. But, we <laughs> but it makes it makes Northern uh, Americans feel good saying it. That's all that matters. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Okay. All right. Very good. So hey, how's Hong Kong? Good. Good. It's it's a lot warmer than where you are. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, it's uh, twenty degrees celsius which i think is around 68 70 oh yeah no that's great very nice but people still consider that cold so you have uh people walking around with big thick winter jackets oh good god that's like it's yep. like being in miami or something i know i'm from canada so <laughs> i go around in a t-shirt and everyone comes up to me and says oh my god you must be so cold take care of yourself <laughs> wow <laughs> well um well, thanks for joining us. We're 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 really thrilled to have you on, and and um, I think what we'll do. Ed, well, I'm taking over. Simon's going to tell us what to do. I feel much better when Simon tells us what to do. But I think what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go into some of the things that you mentioned here uh, in your email, which is more than probably more than enough to cover in 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 one podcast. Well, I I I think soon I, I need to take the the reins and control again. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I think, uh, Perry, I think it'd be a, a great idea if we can hear a little bit more about yourself and uh, your, your background, uh, what, what you're about, and uh, things like your, your your photographic life and how you got here. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm 31. I, I've lived in Canada and in Hong Kong sort of half of my life in each one. Uh, my day job has nothing to do with photography, but I've been into it since I was uh, really, really young. So... You know, my dad was really into photography. He he would do darkroom prints. We still have pictures that he printed in the darkroom of my mom. And when I was a kid, I always wanted to hold the camera when we would go on trips out in uh, out in Alberta, where I grew up. So fast forward X number of years, and the first camera that I remember using as my own was uh, I, I basically stole my dad's Nikon 310 AF panorama, which I still have. It's a little point and shoot with a, a panorama mode. Um, and then I got into photography a lot more seriously when I was kind of late high school, early college. And I was begging my dad for a real camera. So he told me, all right, you got to get a, a, one of your photos published before I buy you a camera. So I was going around with this little point and shoot. I got one of my shots published in a student magazine, which is kind of cheating, but whatever. Um, so he bought me a, a Canon Rebel which I shot with for ages. And fast forward again a little bit. When I was in university, I took a couple of courses in darkroom processing and studio lighting. And that's when, you know, digital had been around for a couple of years and that kind of sucked me back into film. And I then, before I, before I started my PhD, I spent a year working as a fashion photographer. So I was shooting with a, a Canon 5D and a bunch of, you know, L lenses. And uh, I remember my first encounter with someone actually using classic lenses. Because I had a couple. I had like an SMC Takumar 55 1.8, um, some wide-angle Vivitar that I just bought because they were cheap and cool. But I remember I was shooting a fashion show at Toronto Fashion Week. 
and all the photographers are in the pit. And I don't know if you guys have ever been in a photographer's pit at a fashion show, but basically you're all crammed together shooting the same thing. And, you know, we were, we, we had this sort of triple spoon thing going on where we were like all contorted over each other's bodies so that everyone could get a, a view of the show. And, you know, um, as I'm during one of the breaks, there's this older guy on the side and I was chatting with him and I looked at him and I was like, what's that lens you're using? And he shows me and he's shooting this fashion show with a, Contax Yashica 100 millimeter f2 planar oh and I was like what you're shooting a you're shooting a runway show with a manual <laughs> focus lens and he was like yeah man this lens is awesome and and that burned into my memory I actually picked up my own copy of that lens last year uh, and it is really good so then I came back to Hong Kong partly because I was sick of the cold a, a couple years later and I I finally got myself a new camera. Um, and, and then one thing led to another and I started buying more stuff. And I think, I think the, the, the moment that it all sort of came crashing down in, in a sort of financial way was when I bought a Leica. <laughs> uh, <laughs> As that happens to happen to people sometimes. No, because, you know, when I was, it's interesting because when I was in Canada, I was always uh, focused on shooting beautiful things. So I wanted to shoot, I, I shot mostly like fashion, uh, landscapes. I had a 400 millimeter autofocus lens that I would shoot snowy owls and birds with. So I was looking for photos that were, you know, sharp and pretty and ones that would get loads of likes on 500 pics and stuff. And I'm in Hong Kong and I'm like, oh man, this city is so chaotic. It's so dense that nothing here is beautiful and I was in a bit of a rut and I had to kind of evolve photographically and then I, I the first camera I got was a, a Fuji X100T and that thing was just it changed my life in terms of shooting I would just be out with it all the time it was small uh, it was quiet and I started shooting street photography and it was only after I started to get into the work of Fan Ho have you guys heard of him? Mm -mm. Oh man, if if you get a chance, you've got to check out his work, uh, Fan Ho. It's spelled cool. the, the way it sounds. He is probably the most legendary street photographer out of Hong Kong. Uh, mm. He just passed away a couple of years ago, but he shot Hong Kong in the 1950s as a teen oh, with wow. a uh, with a Rolleiflex. Oh, and man, right. his work is gorgeous. And I think that just sort of inspired me to look at the streets of Hong Kong differently. And yeah, and then I I, I, I bought a Leica. And that just opened a world of pain. Uh, and that collection has grown and grown. And then I discovered you guys. And that collection then continued to grow largely due to, well, gas. I yeah, just, and here I, we are. So now I'm sitting on a collection of like a ridiculous number of cameras and lenses and a fridge full of film. I've just uh, gone onto Fan Ho's uh, page. And the, the first photograph that, and uh, I went. There's a section there called uh, Hong Kong Yesterday, and the the first shot there is called Afternoon Chat, um, and, mm. and it was taken in 1959. And it's uh, it's a 
it's just some people um, standing at the bottom of a, a, a stairway uh, in a public space and there's some beautiful light streaming yeah. in and there's uh, a couple of contrajour uh, people in the foreground and you've you've got yeah. silhouettes of people in the background and you've got some beautifully illuminated people in the middle of it. Um, yeah, stunning shot and uh, yeah, fan ho. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely I've got fantastic. that book. Any readers who haven't heard of him, I'll go check out his work. It's gorgeous. And, you know, the, the thing that I, I love about his work is he manages to take the chaos of Hong Kong and through his uh, his use of light composition and timing, just transform, like, what is another, I think, an otherwise somewhat ugly city into just stunning, stunning images. Yeah, I, I have actually seen some of these shots before without realizing it was it was him and um yeah. there's a couple in particular that are just really stunning <laughs> yeah. so yeah yeah great stuff wow i mean hong kong is is there's a rich uh photographic and cinematic history here mm -hmm. but this is the city that gave you wong kar wai and fan ho but it's also the city that gave you the yashika y35 <laughs> so <laughs> you got the whole spectrum <laughs> I, I think uh, there'll be many many listeners to the podcast that don't know about the the Y the Y thirty five. I think it's just worth just uh, just touching upon that one just for their for their benefit, um, and then they can delete it from their mind as quickly as possible. And uh, <laughs> oh, it was, it was a, a camera that was kick started last year. I think it I think it all happened last year. I don't know if it went into twenty seventeen, um, but it was. Um, a company using uh, the Yoshika name and uh, the look of uh, one of the classic uh, Yoshika fixed lens cameras um, um, produced this thing uh, that uh, it looked like a film camera in a way, uh, but it was digital. And instead of using like SD cards or some other recording medium, it had these uh, something called Digifilm. And I think yeah. there's three. Uh, digifilms that you can put in. You have to load the digifilm that gives you a certain kind of look to to the photography. So it sort of like pre-processes your your or post-processes your your photo immediately in a, in a certain yeah. way. Um, and you don't you don't get to see your pictures until you've uh, put them on your on your computer and so on. And I don't know if, that, if I've made that sound better than it is because I hope. Yeah. I no, it's it's a piece of crap. The thing yeah. is a. Uh, uh, it's a security camera monitor. I think there's six films that you can buy. It, it's made of plastic. There's a piece of metal inside to make it feel uh, heavier. There's <laughs> buttons on it that don't actually do anything. Yeah, and yeah. when it first launched, you know, people were paying like 200 US dollars for the thing. And when the reviews started coming in in Hong Kong, I started seeing people just flooding the market with theirs. You know, they got on it on Kickstarter, realized it was terrible. <laughs> And we're just trying to get rid of it before everyone else realized, and now it's selling for, for peanuts. Actually, I, one I, quick story I, about the. Oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead, John. Uh, no, no, no. I was just going to say I have the misfortune of having handled one of these personally, and it was far worse than your possible expectations of how bad it was. Oh yeah, I mean, my quick anecdote about Anybody, it was yeah. uh, I was walking uh, with my girlfriend, and we we passed a shop that had some cool looking cameras and things inside. They were selling like Zeiss lenses and stuff. So I went inside, looked at their display. There was a Yashica uh, Y35 at the front of the display. I looked at it and I was just like, nope, nope, let's go. This place is not worth our time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it, yeah, it, it, just, just to dish on it 
a, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw it in person because it, it basically has a thing on the front that looks like a lens. You know how yes. cameras have these things on the front that are like lenses. It says F2. Yeah. And it just kind of like doesn't do anything. It just sits there and it's like molded onto the bot. I mean, it was, it was like beyond scamera bad. Like those yeah. big 35 millimeter scameras from back in the day. It was, it was far worse than that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Wow. That thing sucks. Yeah. No, I, I just, I just finished developing a roll of, uh, HP five today out of a disposable camera that I bought in Europe when I was there last summer and I didn't have a film camera on me. And I swear this disposable camera from Ilford is better built than that. Yashi. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, no doubt about it. Any, any like, like single use camera is better than that thing. No doubt about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what were we talking about? <laughs> uh, you were talking about Hong Kong, um, which gave us, Fan Ho and the Yashica Y35. Um, yes. Right. And uh, I want to know about the Blade Runner esque awesomeness of Hong Kong, is what I want to know about. Because it looks amazing that, like, the images of the city itself. Yeah. It, it's, it's a really interesting city to shoot because, number one, even though it's like a really densely packed metropolis, it's also, I think, something like 90% mountain. And we're mm. right next to the ocean. So it's the only only city where I've been where you have access to like the ocean um, and hiking trails in your backyard. But it's also crazy wow. dense. So I think there's two Hong Kongs. Uh, well, more than two. But there's like the natural side. Then there's the city. During mm. the day, Hong Kong, I think, is really difficult to shoot because uh, it's so chaotic. And, you know, during some seasons, we've got the pollution coming in from China. It's all hazy. Uh, so I like to shoot a lot of black and white film during the day because I think the colors just look ugly mm. in the city. Unless you go out to some of the temples or um, uh, some of the more, I think, traditional looking areas where there are still pockets of the kind of st traditional street signs that you might see in some of Fan Ho's photography or um, Wong Kar Wai's films. But at night, Hong Kong really comes to life because... Like as you mentioned, it, it looks super Blade Runner. -y. I think Blade Runner was the cinematography was partly uh, yeah. influenced yeah. by Hong Kong. Yeah. And so yeah. you've just got you just got skyscrapers and lights of all kinds of colors. There yeah. are areas in Hong Kong where the neon signs still live. Um actually a couple of days ago, Saturday night, I was with uh, a, a member of the Facebook group was in Hong Kong and he messaged me. And we went, uh, we went camera shopping on Friday, which we'll talk about later. And on Saturday night, we went shooting in one of the older areas with a lot of traditional, like, well, I don't know about traditional, but like those neon lights and night markets. And uh, I went there with my X-Pan loaded with Cinestill. And that, oh, man, Cinestill in Hong oh. Kong at night is just a gorgeous, gorgeous. Oh, yeah. I can only, yeah, that would be, I can only imagine. Because it's so good with, like, artificial Yes. Light. I mean, it, that's what that film is for, man. That's, that's exactly. For, that's for. great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Super cool. So let's 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 talk a little bit about the dealers in in yeah. uh, in, in Hong Kong because one of the I don't I don't know a great a great deal about the the, the camera market in uh, Hong Kong other than there's a lot of it going on. It's a, it's, yeah. it's certainly very popular there and. And it's it's quite common for some of the high end 
lenses in in Europe to find their the, their way over to uh, to Hong Kong and and China for that matter and the and, and Japan as well. Um, mm-hmm. But one one thing that there's there's a there's at least one dealer I, I can't remember who it is now but there's there's somebody in in, in the Hong Kong that uh, likes to sell as rare lenses and they put some on eBay and they put some on absolutely staggeringly high prices at times yeah. is is that yeah. is that uh, are you aware are you aware of that seller I think there's more than one uh, I can think of more than one that fits that description yeah I think that um, that's that go Kevin camera I think that's oh yeah I've true. seen him on eBay yeah there's yeah, another one yeah. um, called Breguet camera, I don't know how to pronounce that, or something like that. And they have a shop here, and I, and I think a shop in Japan. Um, I could be wrong about that latter one. But yeah, they just post rare lenses for crazy prices. But people buy them, you know, if the condition is top mint, uh, <laughs> as they say in Japan, <laughs> yeah. and you guys have discussed, then yeah, you know, there's a market for that. But there's a market for everything. Hong Kong, when it comes to classic lenses, I think this is probably the best market in the world for it, or at least the densest because yeah. you know japan is a great place for classic lenses but i don't think it's quite as concentrated mm. so just a, as a quick overview you know there are there are so many shops here that sell them but there's also so many people who are into it you know it's it's really common to walk down the street in hong kong and see people with leicas or with film cameras or um you know i was shooting a little while back uh at, at a, a seaside pier. It's called Instagram Pier because people like to go there and take Instagram pictures. And I, I was shooting with a Bronica S2. And there were a whole bunch of people there shooting a film, but there was one dude with a uh, with a large format. I think it was like a Linhoff uh, 4x5 or something on a tripod. And he was just like running around this pier. I've never seen anyone move so quickly with a large format camera. <laughs> so there's a large community for that. And um, there was a thread in the the uh, Facebook group a little while back about uh, the places you can go. But we have, for example, an entire shopping mall called Champagne Court that's dedicated to film equipment, uh, old old cameras, old lenses, uh, film film processing. Um, there are shops that are high end. There are shops that are you know they they deal in the the lower price stuff and repairmen. I mean, like off the top of my head, I can think of at least 20 shops uh, that sell classic lenses and old film cameras, which, wow. which is kind of insane because Hong Kong is not a big place, right? It's nuts. <laughs> and the, the cool thing is a lot of the dealers are people who open the shops because they're enthusiasts themselves. Uh, for example, there's three places that I like to go. There's one guy who's been on a lot of like uh, he's been featured on a lot of YouTube videos. He's this guy called David Chan, and his shop is in Champagne Court. The guy is the head of the Hong Kong Antique Society, so he collects like cameras and and cars. And I, his shop, you know, he 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 runs it like a tra- traditional old business. He goes in there, he wears a suit every single day. Uh, he'll talk to you about stuff, but he's got like loads and loads of gorgeous stuff in there. I swear, ninety percent of it is not for sale. Be- wow. Because you ask him, you're like, oh, this is cool. How much for that? And he'll be like, no, I don't want it. Uh, sorry, I don't want to sell it. That's mine. And that happens more often than not. You know, I, I went into one shop where they had uh, they had an Alpa camera. And I-, I asked the shopkeeper, I was like, yo, how much is that? That's cool. 
Uh, and he just looks at me and he goes, no, that's my collection. You can't have that. I was like, are you, <laughs> are you running a store or a museum here? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, but it, it's, I think it's, it's also the fact that there's such a large uh, photographic and film community to, to support it. You know, loads of people here shoot film. Loads of people love to play with old lenses. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, this is something I think we can talk about later, but there's a, another Facebook group I'm part of in Hong Kong, which is dedicated to people playing with old lenses. And the, the lenses those guys mess around with are just, they're things like the Dalmeyer Super 6 and Astigmats and like the old wow. Kinoptics that just cost, they, they make, they make Leicas look cheap. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, what, where are all these people who are sitting at home with like a shelf full of like Super 6 lenses? It's insane. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah. the, 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 I, the benefits of uh, playing with the Super 6 um, back end of last year. Um, yeah. And um, I've got to say, it's it's a absolutely stunning lens, or at least the one I had anyway. It's, it was the two inches, so it was effectively the, uh, the 50 mil, uh, 1.9. And it was just, <clears throat> excuse me, it was, I only had the optical block of it so i i managed to mount it into a into a helicoid um but oh, i don't know if it was just i was just out with it and every day i went out with it the light was beautiful or it was the lens i don't i don't really know i just know that almost everything i did just looked wonderful with that lens so uh, uh but the the prices that they they go for is just astonishing uh, considering that yeah. you know they're not a lens that uh, you know, if you look in our our Facebook group. It's a lens that hardly ever gets mentioned, so it, it's well well above our pay grade of, of, of the group, if you like. But there are a, yeah. a group of people that um, you know that, that that really go for those, those those things, and it seems like a yeah a large number of well, them again are in your your neck of the woods. I remember that because I I think I posted a, a something asking people to show off their like rarest lens, and you shared you shared that one, and. The picture you posted was gorgeous, but honestly, like most of the pictures that I see taken with these, I'm like, uh, it, it doesn't yeah. look very good. And there's a guy, um, there's a guy here. Well, there's more than one guy here who who collects these things. And um, there's a YouTube channel by a guy called Big Head Taco. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. I've, I've heard the name on another podcast for some reason, but uh, yeah. So he he he's based in Vancouver. He's a Japanese guy called uh, Take, and he comes to Hong Kong quite a lot. And I, I've met him a few times. And he has one episode where he interviews uh, this this collector. And the guy just said, look, I, I don't buy these like crazy expensive lenses because they're the best lenses. I just want to see what they look like. Yeah, you know, I just want to mount them <laughs> to a camera, a four by five or a Sony and just like see what it looks like. And it's cool. I, th I, I think that's what drives many of us. Um, I'm, I'm, I mean, we haven't necessarily got the budget to do some of the, the truly exotic lenses, but I remember when I first uh, fell into this rabbit hole, uh, I'd be pretty much just as excited to try a, a practical lens as, as anything else, uh, because it's just something I haven't tried before, and I just want to see what it's like. And is it is it the mythical lens that nobody's nobody's really paid any attention of, and it actually produces something special? Um, and it was like a, a voyage of discovery. So that that was a a real driver in the in in the early days of uh, when I got into this hobby. Yeah, I mean, I I saw a video of some French guy 
uh, named Matthew something, and he was talking about a Lomo T43 lens, or and I think it's the lens out of a Lomo camera that's just been ripped out and and stuck onto an Indostar, an old Indostar. So yep. I bought one, <laughs> and it's a sweet lens. I mean, it's got this cool swirly bokeh. It's f4, so you don't get much of that effect. Um, it's sharp as hell, and I mean, I never use it, but it was so cheap, and I yeah. just bought it because I was like, I want to see what this looks like. Yeah, I, I have one of those two that I bought for the same reason, and actually, I think uh, Carl has or had one of those also. He may still have it, um, but yeah, it's uh, that's actually a pretty great lens. Yeah, shockingly so. Um, yeah. But there's, I mean, there, there's a lot of the one thing that that always interests me about people who use classic lenses and p- people like us who have this hobby is, and I was talking about this uh, about this with Simon before. In before the podcast started recording, but like I want to ask you guys, how do you go about sort of evaluating or comparing lenses? Because you know the the paradigm on the internet is to do this stupidly over scientific. You know, I'm going to take a picture of a chart um, yeah. and then compare it with another picture of a chart, and you know, it, by that logic, you might as well take like a photo lithography lens and you know take a shot with that and say this is the best lens in the world because it's designed for shooting charts or, or printing flat stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, that's, um, I, I, I generally call that measure, measurabation. Uh, yeah. yeah measurabating. Yeah. So what right. I want to know is what, what do you guys do? I mean, I'm sure we all have loads of 50 millimeter lenses, right? So when you buy like another 50 millimeter lens. Well, I, I take mine and I, put it on a mirrorless camera and I get my handy chart out and uh, I see how it shoots that chart and that, no, I have done that. I have done that. No. So I, I will just say that um, I don't buy a whole lot of lenses these days. Um, although I do have some things I'm going to talk about later on the podcast uh, that I bought. Um, but generally these days when I buy a lens, it's a rangefinder lens. And I, what I, what I do is I do actually, well, depending on the lens and if I have any concerns about it, I do actually check to see that um, the rangefinder coupling is, you know, that everything's accurate on it. So I do tend yeah. to check it just to make sure that that's right because there's not really a way to see that, you know, in a rangefinder until you start looking at film and realize, oh, there's something wrong here. So I will generally actually probably fire a couple of shots where I I check to make sure that it's actually rangefinder coupling correctly. Um, and then assuming that's okay, I mean, honestly, I just, I just look at the glass and I mean, if the, if the glass is ex- in acceptable condition, then I, I'm usually good to go with that. I don't really, I don't really worry about, I mean, it, it, if I want the lens, I want the lens and I'm, you know, unless for some reason it's like a super dud with a giant bubble in it, as we discussed on a previous podcast, um, unless it has some really apparent flaw like that, I'm assuming it's probably going to be just fine. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I do that too with rangefinder lenses. Um, it's, yeah. it's one of the reasons I have a Leica M240. But I, I'm talking more about like comparing the rendering um, yeah. and yeah. and how the glass looks. Well, I think that that Johnny shoots on film, so it doesn't matter, does it, Johnny? No, not really. I mean, I, no, but I've I've done that. I mean, I've I've bought lenses and I've I've shot. You know, I get particular places I would go and shoot the same sort of thing on different lenses and see how they render you know what i mean like so i had some kind of comparison you know to them uh to each other i guess 
Um, See, but here's I mean, the thing that, that's interesting. Yeah. Sorry, go, go ahead. Uh, no, but I mean, I was going to say that's, you know, I would do that on a mirrorless camera, not so much on a, on a film camera because it, yeah, the, on film, I mean, it's going to knock everything down anyway. So I don't really think the differences are all that apparent, but I, I would try to get some sort of sense of what the color rendering might be like, you know, wide open versus, you know, F8. And, and just, so I had a, a feeling of if I wanted to shoot it more as a black on black and white film or on color film or what I, how I wanted to use it, you know? Um, but then after that, I would just, it pretty much would live on a film camera of some sort. Yeah. I mean, the, I have a huge collection of rangefinder lenses and I think, you know, color rendering is one of the biggest differences. Like Canon right. LTM lenses are so much warmer. Uh, yeah. At least the ones I have are so much warmer than anything else um, that I have. But then, you know, you stick a, stick a ZM lens on uh, with P Portra and it's just gorgeous. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. But you know, the, the thing, the thing for me that is always kind of interesting is if I do sort of stupid test shots, I, a lot of the times I can't tell the difference, but then when I'm actually using the lens, it, it's so obvious uh, yeah. when there are differences. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and that's what I, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. It's like the, the testing doesn't really give you a real life experience of the lens. And it's like, that's when you really learn about it is when you're just shooting actual stuff. So. Yeah, exactly. Like I have a Sony A7R2, which, which I hate that camera. Um, but what I use that camera for is to mess around with the lenses that I can't mount on anything else. <laughs> but then once I mount those lenses on film, it's like, oh, this looks so much better. Well, no, not universally. There are a couple of lenses that look nice on the Sony. Um, but like for me, it, it's interesting because when it comes to use, I think there's like one of the things that, that I remember is there are some lenses that I've used where I've shared the photos. And when ordinary people look at the photos, I sometimes get the response of, oh, that looks cool. Or my favorite response is when they say, I love this because it looks so real. And I know that that's the look that I'm going for. Uh, I think, you know, people call it like 3D pop or whatever. But the lenses that I like the most are the only lenses I have that have elicited that specific response in people. Like that looks cool because it looks so real. And, uh, you know, I, I think I think valuing the opinion of people who aren't going to like zoom in to 100% and count the count the pores on your face yeah um yeah is is pretty important yeah i ain't got no time for that <laughs> okay well from from my perspective i've um i think i wish i took some notes now because i've got so many criteria that i might actually use some of some are more spurious than others um but i, I think well actually the, the, let's cover film first um i Generally speaking, it's a case of I have a limited number of film cameras, so therefore it's just going to be what fits. And if I've got a choice of similar lenses, then it's going to be a case of, well, do, does does one of them give me something that the other one can't do that I'm going to need? So is, is one you know faster for some reason because I need a, a faster aperture for some particular reason? So a, a technical reason might just make me pick one over the other because, again, um, as, as as Johnny was saying there, the, 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 you don't see the, the the differences in the same way on film as you as you do on digital. So, um, mm. largely for me, it's it's practicality and also handling. Um, and yeah. handling is something that that goes whether it be on film or on on digital. Handling is incredibly important to me personally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. to me um, as well. I think it's 
probably more important than the actual like i don't know sharpness of the lens yeah it, it, it certainly can be um now on digital uh my criteria on the on the lens is 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 very wide in terms of what i think makes a good lens or an interesting lens to me um the first point is everything effectively uh, even if I, I don't specifically set out this way but everything gets judged against my favorite 50 millimeter lens uh, which is the mm -hmm. uh Carl's planer 51.4 on uh contact your chic amount and oh i have that lens it's awesome yeah <laughs> it's, uh, yeah no arguments from me on there um although i i always have to say that you know this is a lens that i've owned for over 30 years so and it was the first lens i used as a, as a classic lens on 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 digital um so um i'm very much tied to that lens um so uh, there's there's some confirmation bias whenever i actually compare it with something else if it, if, if something seems to do something better I'll, I'll say well it doesn't quite do this as well or or, or whatever and i'll just make something up <laughs> i'll say well and if if all else fails i'll just say well my contacts handles better than anything else and uh, and i'm and I think it does. Uh, I think the, the weighting of the, the focus ring, uh, the, the feel of the aperture ring on it, every, everything about it, um, I think it's a, it's a wonderful lens. I wish it had eight blades or more, but it doesn't. And uh, that's just one of those things. Um, so that's like my reference lens. But the thing is with that lens, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a very good lens. It's my go-to lens if I need to capture something important. Um, but if I actually want to do, if, if I wanted another lens, which is obviously I do, um, and I've got quite a few, then it's really about what does it do different, differently from my, my planar. And, and really, and, and that's, and that's the whole point for me about classic lenses is because so many lenses do things differently, even though they're 50 to 55 millimeter or 58 millimeter, um, they can, they all give you a, a, a dip. Well, most of them give you a, a, a level of different rendering, some dramatically different and some mm -hmm. subtly different. And I think that it's those, the, those lenses that give dramatic differences that, are more likely to stay with me uh, rather than get get sold on and in many cases those dramatic differences are largely because of flaws or errors and uh, and things that the lenses are viewed as not being particularly good um, for a particular reason but it's that then enables me to pick a lens that I can go out and take some photographs that will give me the look that I want to have on that particular day um, instead mm -hmm. of like the the modern photographer going and uh, thinking, okay, on is my my one lens that I use, and I'm going to give it the look that I want by putting it into Photoshop. Yeah, and you know the uh, it's also different depending on the camera you put it on. I mean, Johnny had his rant a couple episodes ago about how Sony's are not the objective measure, uh, which which he's 100 percent right because the colors and everything sucks on the Sony. Um, but you know. The, the other thing I think is they handle so differently on different cameras as well. And the experience of shooting, uh, it, it, it's transformed by that pairing. So there's a lot of wisdom to, I think, the idea of having a favorite lens on a favorite camera. Like, so for example, I have a, I have this Leica 50 millimeter F1.4 Sumilux uh, version two, um, the black E43 one. I got it for a really good deal, but I, I, I only like using that lens on my M2, but I love using it on my M2 because it has this really long focus throw, mm -hmm. which means mm -hmm. that I have to go slow when I shoot with it. Uh, it looks great on Portra or Kodak Ultramax or 
any black and white film. But because the M2, you know, doesn't have doesn't have a meter, uh, it's kind of slow to operate. It's it's a little bit quirky to load. That forced slowing of the shooting process makes it perfect with that long focus throw, and I, I just love that combination. But then if I, I stick my I, yeah. that lens on anything else, I'm like, eh. Man, I totally agree with you. <laughs> I I mean, I tend to do exactly that. I tend to get a camera and have like a lens that lives on that camera. And then if I want to shoot a different lens, I'm going to, I'm going to actually have a different camera with me to shoot that lens. You know, I mean, I do that. I do that all the time. Um, and I, I really believe there's something to that, um, that, that the overall ergonomics of the entire package together just works right. I mean, you know, for me, the example of that is my everyday camera, um, which is a Canon P with the uh, Canon 35 F2 LTM. I mean, to oh, yeah. me, it's it's just like a perfect package. But here, the but the funny thing is, I also have um, like a Canon 4SB, and I could use that 35 F2 on there, but it doesn't feel right. What feels right on that camera is the Canon 35 2.8 because it's got a focus tab, and it just it's yeah. way easier and more intuitive to use a Barnack style camera with a focus tab lens on it. And the 35 F2 doesn't have that. And it, I I mean, it's, it's like a weird subtle difference, but to me, it's like a totally different shooting experience to shoot a Barnack style camera without a focus tab on a lens. It just doesn't feel right. You know, um, I'm a hundred percent with you on that. Yeah. I, I totally believe that. And so I, I do tend to do that. I tend to have like, you know, if I'm going to, if I want to shoot a lens, it's going to be on a particular camera. And that's kind of the the point I've gotten to where, um, you know, I, if I, if I have a particular lens, I have like one camera that goes with it. And that's kind of the full-time setup for that particular lens, which is really convenient because it means I have to have more camera bodies. Um, so, <laughs> but, but I mean, also it's kind of to a point also where there are camera bodies i don't really need anymore because i don't have a lens that i particularly want to use on them um probably best case in point being pretty much anything m42 i just (laughs) there's just i just don't i mean i just don't want to use there's just not an m42 body that i really want to use at this point um except for like maybe a really old unmetered pentax uh yeah but i I mean i think so yes yeah go on no, no, I was going to say, I, I, I'm really a kind of a believer in that. And I think um, there's also something to be said for getting really familiar with a particular combination of camera and lens uh, yeah. that, that, I mean, that I really think works. I mean, on, on the digital side, I, you know, I, when I was, and I don't really do a lot of this anymore, but when I was shooting more mirrorless digital on the Fuji, I, I ended up having... Um, pen f lenses on there because it was just like the size everything was just perfect it was like the right size the right combination of everything um so if you know that's sort of where i spent most of my my time on uh the fuji stuff is with the pen f lenses now i mean obviously they they go fantastically well on pen f cameras but they they worked really well on the fuji also so i i think there's a lot to that combination and you know, I, I know there's a thing that goes around where people say, oh, the camera doesn't matter. But I, I just don't believe that. <laughs> Not at all. No, and it's so it's so sub- subjective as well, because I, I have a Canon P and that that 35 F2. Yeah, um, I actually I, I got rid of the 35 1.8 because I hate infinity locks. 
Um, but mm -hmm. I, I don't use 35 millimeter lenses on the Canon P because I, I wear glasses and I can't see the frame. Lens. Oh, sure. Yeah. So on my Canon P, I only put uh, either the Jupiter 8 or a uh, Canon 51.8 or something like that. Sure. Whereas my 35 Perfect. F2 Canon, it, it lives on it lives on my Bessa R. And like oh, I carry yeah. that around most of the time because it's so light. That's great. Yeah, what a great combo. Yeah. I mean, so going back to Hong Kong, right? The, the idea of a, a camera and uh, lens combo, the guy I mentioned, David Chan, I was at his shop and I get a feeling, Johnny, that, you know, you might be one of the few guys remaining in the States who's like this, where you're running a camera shop and like, you know, you know your stuff inside out and you're there for the, for the, for the love of the game. Yeah. Because um, I went in there with a Contax 2A with a, a 51.5 Opton Sonar and I wanted to buy an adapter from him. Um, I forget what I wanted to adapt it on. And he, and he started yelling at me and, and I'm like, dude, I'm trying to give you money. And he was like, no, use it on the contacts. It's made for that. That's the best. He went into the and, and corner of his store and he pulls out this book uh, full of contacts pictures. And he starts flipping through them. And he's like, look at this. This is shot with the sonar on the contacts. Portra, this is what it's meant for. And then he goes to the other end of the room. He comes out with a disassembled contacts. And he pick, he picks up mine. He opens it up and he goes, look, I'm going to tell you why this camera is the Rolls Royce of rangefinders. It's better than a Leica. <laughs> While he's doing this, he cuts his pinky on the corner because like the back is pretty sharp. Like there's a couple <laughs> sharp edges on that 2A. So he cuts his pinky. He grabs a piece of tissue, wraps it around his pinky. And then like as he's bleeding and holding, <laughs> holding this camera, he continues to, to talk to me. And he's like, look. He takes off the top of the context to it and he's like, this is why it's better than a Leica because there's this tube that connects the rangefinder uh, mirror with the actual viewfinder. So he's like, this tube of glass, it'll never go out of alignment because there isn't like one mirror moving around that has to be calibrated with another. It's so beautifully built. That's why you should use this. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm not going to. I'm not going to buy your adapter then. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Wow, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there, there is actually a. So, I mean, it is amazing to me that you have this density of, uh, of camera equipment and stores. I mean, like, I'm in a metro area of literally nine million people, and there's one camera store downtown, mine, mm. that sells used equipment. There's like two others oh, in the man. suburbs. And there's another one in northern Indiana run by a guy who pretty much does the same thing. Like all the good stuff he has, he won't sell it. And like Mike, <laughs> Mike Ekman goes in there and is always trying to get this guy to sell stuff to him. Yeah. <laughs> and he won't. And I think Mike did finally like pry some things out of this guy. Um, and I'm talking about Gary Camera for anybody who's ever been there. It's a great place. They are super, super nice people. But it's like they don't want to sell anything in the shop, so yeah, it's pretty funny. Um, so I, I'm I'm amazed that you that you have the ability there to support that much camera goodness. That's really a cool thing. <laughs> there are so many. I mean, there's like one neighborhood in in a place called Chimsa Choi. Uh, I went there with a member of the group a couple of days ago. There's at least one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's at least ten shops selling. Uh, like classic lenses and, and gear within a block of each other. And, you know, he, he, he bought an Olympus uh, 51.4 while he was there. But like one of the, and it's not just the shops. There's, there's so many people who are into this hobby that there are like web platforms. Uh, there's a website called DC Fever and there's an app called Carousel where people are just constantly buying and selling these lenses. 
Wow. And I remember one of the the shop owners uh, who I know, I was chatting with him and, and I was like, man, I don't know how to justify buying all of this expensive stuff. And he was like, dude, of all the hobbies you could have, this is the <laughs> one where you're not going to lose money, especially in Hong Kong. <laughs> and he's right. That and you know, sense. Yeah. the price keeps going up, right? Mm-hmm. And the the so the the rationale behind like me accumulating this ridiculous collection of rangefinders and rangefinder lenses is I've made like a 25% profit on at least 90% of the things I've sold um when I didn't want it anymore. Yeah. So it's just a case of like oh a good deal popped up. If I don't get on this deal, someone's going to get on it in like 20 minutes. Cuz I've <laughs> seen things posted online in Hong Kong that have sold within like 10 minutes. Wow. Of of wow. being listed. And yeah. so it's just like, yeah, okay, I'll buy this lens because I know it's a good deal. And as a result, I mean, Hong Kong is one of those places that because the market's so dense, you have to kind of build up a a, a quasi-encyclopedic knowledge of uh, what's out there so that when a good deal does pop up, you've got to like jump on it. Wow. It's, it's, it's so <laughs> intense and so crazy. It's like a sport. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah, in some ways, you know, one of the coolest things about this website DC Fever where people list their their gear is it shows you the number of inquiries that any given listing has. So, you know, I, I like a couple of days ago, I remember someone listed a, a Leica 35mm F2 Summicron, the, the version 4 that everyone loves. And they listed it for really cheap. I can't remember the price. But within 20 minutes of them posting it, there were five inquiries. Uh, on the platform so you know there's just a bunch of dudes sitting at home like hitting refresh with like the like a search <laughs> <Yes>. query <laughs> and just going after these things wow that's totally cool. but it's not just like a stuff you know there's there's um huge numbers of like students um one of the things that i mentioned in the email is there's a a couple of repair guys and one of the things i worry about the most is when these repair guys are gonna you know retire or or leave the business um, but there's one guy here who's a total legend. His his name is Uncle Tat. That's what we call him. And he does repairs on on violins and classic cameras. And I went into his shop uh, a little while back. I was getting him to fix fix something for me. What was it? Um, oh, what, one of my top core lenses uh, had like a loose element. And he was telling me how he his turnaround time was going to be a little bit longer because he had a surge of uh, local students come in with cannonets for him to repair. So he had like 25 cannonets on his desk behind him. He's like, I got to deal with these first before I, before I get to your lens. (laughs) So like young people are getting into it. And that's one of the coolest things is like hobby staying alive and growing. Yeah. That's awesome. Johnny, I I, I just thought, I think this might be a good time to mm-hmm. read out, we'll have to take a little break and we'll yeah. read out the other email that we had uh, that uh, was sent to us this week. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so we have an email uh, that's, that uh, is about Canon 51.2 LTM Haze. So it says, hey guys, listening to the latest podcast with uh, Leiden and just finished the part where Simon asks about the Canon 51.2 LTM's Haze blobs. I've taken apart a couple of these lenses and that's a really common issue uh, that's easy to clean. I think it's most likely haze that dries up from the fat aperture blades, especially because after cleaning, the issue tends to reappear after a while. Um, The good news is the lens and most Canon LTM lenses in my experience are super easy to take apart and clean. 
Uh, you just have to remove the rear retaining ring with a lens spanner and the entire assembly comes off. After that, the rear element of the 51.2, um, also the 51.5, screws off by hand. Uh, there's another element after that, which comes off easily with the spanner or by hand, and the haze almost always occurs inside that element. Um, it's super easy to clean, and then the lens is clear and good as new until you inevitably have to do it again. Um, I can do it in 10 minutes now and have grown fonder of this lens over time. Reassembly is easy too, as it only fits back in one way. Um, that said, I had one copy of this lens, mint except for the haze, where the rear element just wouldn't come off. It felt like someone had glued the threads on. Uh, I heard of others encountering that so that too, so I don't know what's going on there. Anyway, love this show. Uh, just thought I would write and write in and let anyone with haze in their Canon 51.2 LTM know that it is one of the easiest DIY cleaning jobs out there. Uh, and this is signed, cheers, Perry G. So... <laughs> You know, I, I have that I um I have that same lens and I, I think I've mentioned that my my lens repair and service skills are quite limited. And that's one of the few lenses I will actually take apart are the Canon LTMs because they do in fact literally just screw apart like no big anybody could do it. <laughs> anybody with a lens yeah. there. I mean, I think the first thing to preface to any like listeners is do this at your own risk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but apart, yeah, the Canon LTMs and I think like the, the Jupiter nine are pretty easy to take apart because they just kind of screw apart. Yeah. But this one, it, it really is, you know, the reason why I know this is um, one of the first Canon LTM lenses I got was uh, 51.4. And when I tested it on, on my range finders, it was front focusing like crazy. I, I'd never seen this amount of front focusing before. And I was like, what the, what, what's going on here? So I did a bit of reading, Googling, and I figured out that you can take it apart pretty easily. So I, I, I removed the retaining ring and I just wanted to take a look at the shims uh, to see if I could adjust it. I opened the lens and some dude had shoved like a huge paper shim in there. <laughs> Basically, he like cut out this this ring of paper and shoved it between the lens and the hel- uh, the optical block and the helicoid. And I was like, okay, this guy's you know whatever camera this guy's using it on, uh, you should get that calibrated. So I removed yeah. the paper shim, put it back together. It was perfect. I was like, oh, that was easy. And uh, and and it turns out like pretty much every Canon LTM lens seems to have a similar kind of similar kind of uh, assembly. That's funny. So do you guys, apart from that, have you guys tried to fix much of your own stuff? Um, well, we t- touched upon I mean, you my, did talk um, about it last week, yeah. Yeah, well, certainly my, my lack of skills we uh, we touched upon last week. Uh, but uh, I, I just, just need to reiterate something about that Canon uh, 51.2. Uh, the experience that I had, or say I had, it was with uh, uh, my camera repair guy and I was standing next to him when he was doing it. And uh, yeah, he's, he took the lens apart very, very quickly and easily. Um, and he wiped that haze, but it left behind um, almost like a mirrored uh, look to the, um, to the element. So uh, it wasn't just a matter of being able to just, just wipe it clean and put it back together again and everything's fine because it just, it just wasn't fine. Um, from many angles, it's a bit, it's a bit like sometimes when you, when you see balsam separation, you, you, there, there are times where you just don't see it at all. Um, and then there are times when it's really obvious 
and I was having exactly the same experience looking at that 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 fifty mil one point two lens. It, it, there were times where if the light caught it in a certain way, you could see that there was something not right yeah. about one of those mm-hmm. rear elements, and uh, and I believe that's something that you well. You, to to fix it, you would need somebody with the skills of Matthew Duclos to uh, to, to yeah. really deal with that properly. But you know, it, it's a case of the lens worked, you know. So, uh, but I think yeah. it'd be a case of there be a loss of contrast, I guess. Yeah, I, I've learned the hard way that if, if it's not easy, um, put it back <laughs> together and, and let someone who knows what they're doing. Do. Oh man, you know, the first time I tried to to uh, service my own camera, I mean, I've gotten pretty good at a couple of things, like cleaning lenses, LTM lenses, I can take apart the top plate of most range finders and, and clean the viewfinder if it's dirty on the inside. That's easy. But the first thing I tried to do uh, was my cousin got me this 1930s Lumiere folding 6x9 camera from a pawn shop in France for like a buck. And the shutter wasn't working. So I was like, oh, you know, this thing didn't cost anything. Let me just see if I can fix it and see what, what it's like. And the shutter on that is is it's not it's not even it's not like a synchro shutter. It's like one of those old pre-synchro leaf shutters. So I had no idea what I was doing. So I take the lens off and I am like taking it apart, um, removing all the little screws. And then when I get to the shutter assembly, I open uh, the the back of the lens and just springs go flying everywhere. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, that's how this shutter works. There's a bunch of springs inside. Um, so now that's just sitting as a, as a decorative ornament on the top of my shelf. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I have, uh, I, have a, I have kind of a sad one uh, like that as well. I, I got very cheaply. Um, well, I have, I have several, uh, Wallensack fast ax lenses, which are the 16, uh, millimeter camera lenses that were like these military lenses that they used for, you know, um, testing out uh, all sorts of stuff that had to be, uh, they made, you know, movies of things at very high speed. Um, so these lenses are, are really fantastic. And I, I used them a lot on the Fuji, um, and some, some of these lenses have been, um, uh, remounted to M mount and sell for mm-hmm. very, very big money. <laughs> so I got yeah. a 50 F2, um, super cheap cause it wasn't in great condition. I'm like, yeah, I'll just, you know, I'll take it apart. I'll, I'll clean it out. I'll do whatever. And, and I couldn't get it back together. So it's in pieces. Um, no great loss to me cause it was really cheap, but you know, in theory, a very valuable lens. Um, <laughs> Those conversions are expensive, man. I mean, I know. I, they're crazy. I've I've <laughs> I've wanted crazy. for a long time after um after talking to Hamish Gill and reading his side, I've wanted for a long time the Contact G ninety two point eight, but like adapted to uh, like amount, and it's just it's just too much. So I I ended up buying the uh, Nikon eighty five f two LTM that when you guys had Bob Rodoloni on, he was talking about how that was like the best Nikon lens. Oh yeah. Yep. Oh, that lens is so sweet. Yeah, it's yep. so nice. But you know, one crazy thing that people do in Hong Kong with the, these adaptations, like apart from the, old, the 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 Super Six lenses and things like that, is there are at least two shops that I know of um, in Hong Kong that specialize in like Frankenstacks uh, mm. modifications. Where are, are you guys familiar with this kind of thing? Yeah, the Instax stuff. 
Yeah, so they'll take like a an old six by nine lens yeah. or a six by six lens and basically like do something to the Instax where they rip off the lens and then yep. they put this large format lens on the front. Yeah. And and then th- it, these things sell for like almost a thousand bucks US. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a there's a guy who does them in the US too. Um which uh what's his name? I'm I'm spacing on his name, but I'll put it in the notes. Um yeah, I, I love I, I would love to do something like that. It looks really it's cool. super cool. I mean the, yeah. the results look gorgeous. Like, you know, the the worst thing about these Instax cameras is just they have these terrible little plastic lenses in them. And then right, right. once you stick the a, a real lens on it, the kind of whether it's shallow depth of field or just a nicer rendering, the results are great, but I don't want to pay a grand for for an Instax camera. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I really want to put uh, Instax into my into my Hasselblad. Um, and I think oh yeah, somebody, somebody's done that. I, I remember last year, I think somebody made a an Instax back for a Hasselblad. I think they were from Australia or something like that. But I haven't heard much much about that since. But that'll be it. yeah. There's places in Hong Kong that will do that for you. Yeah, yeah. I, and I I've done it. I have a plate film adapter for my Rolleiflex, and I've put Instax Mini in there something i should do more of um because it works really really well <laughs> it's very, you can actually very... fo- you can actually focus right yeah yeah i mean you can yeah. you can you can it's got a ground glass so you can you yeah because when you, you put can... the yeah <laughs> yeah because when you put works. the large format lenses you have to guess the distance but if you right right stick an instax back on like an slr or a tlr then then you're good yeah 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 that sounds like the way to go yep well, I've, I've got a I've got a Polaroid back um, from my Hasselblad. Is it is it going to be almost as simple as putting it in that, or is it? The, yeah, you could. What, than that? I don't you, know. Well, what you what you could do, Simon, is you could take the Polaroid back and a Polaroid pack, an empty uh, film pack, and you could put a sheet of Instax in the film pack. In other words, use it like a film holder and then take the shot and then you take the piece of film, put it back in an Instax camera, spit it out through the camera so that it goes to the rollers. And now, boom, you've got an Instax shot on, you know, your Hasselblad or whatever, which is the way I've done it on the Rolleiflex. And it totally works. That works? works? Yeah, it works. You just feed feed the, the film back into the Instax pack and then you just basically, you know, take a picture with the cap on and spit it out. And now you've got a shot that was exposed on whatever, and you just use the Instax pack to, um, you know, basically run it through the the rollers so it can be can develop. But it, yeah, it works. It totally works. Can you can you just just get a rolling pin to it though, or something like that? It- uh, I've tried that and it didn't work very well. Yeah. So I I think you're better to just you know shoot it, it, put it in a dark bag back in the in the pack you know, and put the pack in the Instax camera and let it spit through the rollers naturally. And it seems to work better. I've tried it with a brayer, like a, you know, a brayer, roller brayer for making uh block prints and, you know, etchings, the kind of ink roller that you use, and it just did not work. <laughs> so. Okay. Um, just, just looking through the, your email. And there's yeah. uh, there's uh, something in there that you've uh, you're, you're blaming Johnny for. Uh, oh. <laughs> so so what's, what's what's Johnny done that uh, that deserves some blame? Oh man, well he he's probably gonna be more upset about this than I am now. 
Um, but he, yeah, Johnny made me buy an X-Pan. Uh, dude, this thing is so sweet. So, so obviously, you know, Johnny's talked a lot about this Minolta Freedom Vista thing that he, he carries around. Uh, but there was an episode a while back. I don't remember who you guys were talking to, but he mentioned X-Pan. And Johnny was like, oh, don't even say the word X-Pan. I want one so bad. <laughs> and when he said that, I, I, I was kind of reflecting and, and thinking, huh, so do I. So do I. <laughs> and there's a guy in Hong Kong uh, named, named Vishal. And um, he, he runs a shop, an online store called Camera Film Photo, where they just sell loads of film. Oh yeah, and, I've I've heard. Oh, of this. He's, yeah, he's yeah. awesome, and he's. Uh, he's I think a I think I think Hong Kong is like the expand capital of the universe. I, I mean, oh, from man. what I can tell. <laughs> so you know, um, I, I've met Vishal quite a few times, and uh, there's this little group in Hong Kong uh, called the Shutter Alliance, um, which meets up from time to time to just go and shoot. It's mostly film guys, and uh, yeah, Vishal comes a lot, and. I saw him, last time I saw him was at the Hong Kong Classic Camera Fair. Oh, hold on, my cat's just jumped on the table. Let me push her off. Okay. Uh, so last, last time I saw him was at the Hong Kong Classic Camera Fair. But every time I see him, he shows me pictures that he shot with his X-Pan. And they all look so awesome in that aspect ratio. Yeah. And uh, I think I said something that was a little bit, like, unintentionally insulting. Because his photos are gorgeous. He's an amazing photographer. But as he was flipping through, I was like, oh, man, X-Pan, you could take a pile of a piece of crap and this would look uh, – you could take a picture of a pile of crap with an X-Pan and it would look cool. Like, Vishal, if you're listening, I, your photos are awesome. That's not what I meant. Um, and and before that, I had been just – you know, after this episode that, that Johnny mentioned it, I had just been on Flickr and other websites like looking at X-Pan pics nonstop. And I just love the format. It's – yeah, you know, yeah. it's – the thing with the, the the standard 45 mil lens is it gives you about 24 millimeters on the wide side mm-hmm. and then like a normal 45, 50 mil on the, on uh, the vertical. Mm-hmm. So when I'm shooting with it, it like captures the entire, pretty much my entire horizontal field of view, but without that sort of like wide angle insanity that you would get with an ultra wide. Totally. And it, man, your, your Hong Kong photos with that are just, they're awesome and it seems like oh, the perfect you. environment for that camera because yeah. there's just there's like so much going on and it's like it, i feel like um to me the whole like you know here's another example of a uh camera lens combo that that it, i mean it's just that you can't replicate it to some extent it's not really replicatable any other way um uh, well, it is with a cheap point and shoot, but you know, other than that, um, or GFX, yeah, GFX. But uh, but there's something about the th- that combination that in certain environments just w- it just works incredibly well. And yeah. I- I've seen. I- I'm wondering if the the guy you were talking about, if I've seen his work um, also and didn't know it was him because I've seen there's some other shots from like Hong Kong that I've seen on X-Pan uh, in color that are just like, uh, just absurdly amazing. And um, yeah, it just seems like a, a, a great, a great combo for that environment for exactly the reason you said it's like this, you know, it's, I'm a big fan of the, you know, I've talked about it a lot. The, um, uh, the Bessa L with a 15 millimeter lens on it. But the thing that's really challenging about that lens is I like the, I like how wide it is, but 
there's like sometimes just way too much top and bottom in the frame and it makes exactly. it really yeah it makes it really challenging to work with so it's like um it might be like super close to something yeah you, i mean you literally have to uh, to make that camera that to make that lens work my theory is you basically have to have something in the frame that's practically touching the lens like physically yeah. touching the lens and that's yeah, how you that get the combo too it's just yeah so it's like that's how you get the drama of that near far stuff that really works but i feel like with the you know this the panel format like the x-pan and even like the you know i call it the pocket panavision or the poor man's x-pan the little minolta point and shoot i use you can take a more slightly normal perspective photo um, that's still super wide, almost as wide as the 15 millimeter, but it just works better as a normal shot. Cause you don't yeah. have to like exaggerate necessarily the near far perspective. Um, and I, I really love the entire experience of shooting in that format and composing in that format. And, and it's another case where the camera definitely makes the image because you're composing in the viewfinder in panorama, which is not the same as cropping afterwards. It just isn't. Yeah. Nowhere near, nowhere near. <laughs> no, no. It's a whole gestalt of like seeing in panorama. You know what I mean? And, and I think it were, it just works so well in the shots that you have here. Um, it's perfect in Hong Kong. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it's, it's like, it feels so natural. I thought it would be, I thought it, my, my biggest worry was, you know, this is going to feel gimmicky. I'm going to use it once and then be like, oh, well, it only works for a certain kind of shot. But everywhere <laughs> yeah. I go in Hong Kong, I have not once felt the need to switch it uh, from pano to normal mode. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, when, when I got it, I originally went to a shop that I, I buy quite a lot of stuff from because they give me like a special Perry price. And I asked uh, the shopkeeper. <laughs> that's, that's like the Hamish price, isn't it? It's the same as yeah, the right. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got some good deals from those guys. But uh, it's a shop called Photopia. They do mostly Leica stuff, but they're they're slowly like uh, branching out into other things. Um, so I asked I asked the shopkeeper there, Gilbert. I'm like, yo, I want an X-Pan. Uh, if you if you find one, can you call me? And he looks at me and he goes, Why do you want an X-Pan? Hey, they're so <laughs> expensive. You should have bought one like five years ago. And I was like, yeah. Gilbert, my answer to you is, A, I should have bought everything five years ago. <laughs> it's like an old classic lens and a uh, classic camera and lens. And why do I want an X-Pan? Because they're so cool. <laughs> so a couple weeks later, I'm at the Hong Kong Classic Camera Fair. Vishal is there from Camera Film Photo, um, like showing off his X-Pan postcards that he's got. Bellamy from Japan Camera Hunter was there. And... I'm walking past a stall, uh, which was run by one of the local shops that I go to quite a lot to get my film developed. And lo and behold, they have an X-Pan there. And the buddy that I'm with, I was on the side looking at like some random lens, um, some rangefinder lens. And he goes, Perry, Perry. He grabs me and like basically grabs me by the scruff of the neck and drags me over to the stall. And he goes, look. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, there's an X-Pan. And I looked at the price and it was, it was re a really good price, like for an X-Pan, of course. Um, and I was like, oh, I want that so bad. And I went to Vishal and I was like, Vish, there's, there's an X-Pan here. I want it. He's like, dude, so many people have asked about that today. You should get it before someone else picks it up. Wow. And I just stood there kind of like playing with it for a few minutes. And then I was like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm going to do it. So I, I grabbed the X-Pan, um, bought a roll of, uh, P3200 because it was, it was late at night and, put a roll through it that night. And then the first week I had it, I carried it around with me everywhere. And I put like 
five rolls of film through that in like two days. Yeah. Um, it was yeah. just so exhilarating to shoot with. And the results yeah. are great. The lens is awesome. That's awesome. Well, maybe I should go ahead and talk about, since we're on the subject of panoramas, my, um, my, my latest, I was going to call this my X pan killer <laughs> because I get, there's oh. no way I'm ever going to have one. So I keep trying to find like, the craziest alternatives to an X-Pan. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go get this so I can talk about it. So um, I'm going to step away from the microphone for a moment and I'll be right back because <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. Hold on one second. Okay. So I have in front of me, <laughs> um, uh, I, I, this is a, a combo. I'm, I, first of all, I'm going to blame my coworker at Central Camera, uh, Dan Hendrickson, for helping to give me this idea um, because I started looking around at um, 35 millimeter SLRs that had a switchable panorama mode because for a hot second there in the late nineties um, that was kind of the big thing. And there were actually, uh, and I mean, this is really pretty much at the very tail end of uh, 35 millimeter film camera development. I mean, it's just literally this moment pre-digital, you know? So, the, the big thing at the time was panorama and datebacks, right? So if you, if you look carefully, there are a number of mostly plastic, um, very cheap feeling 35 millimeter SLRs that will do this. Um, Canon made a couple, uh, Nikon even made a couple, um, Minolta made a few, but the one that I ended up with, uh, again, based on suggestion was, uh, the Panasonic ZX5. Now, this is a plastic, fantastic 35 millimeter, very much of the same build quality and feel as like a early Canon uh, Rebel, or I should say late Canon Rebel, whatever you want to think about it, that was built right around 2000, the year 2000, that are all plastic, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that's different about the um, the ZX5, and there's a few different models that are that are similar, is it has a dedicated shutter speed dial um, with a, with aperture priority and it has an EV dial. Um, so you can basically, it, it handles exactly like an older school 35 millimeter camera. Um, and you can put a lens on it with a actual, you know, dedicated um, aperture ring, which, you know, let's say if this was like an EOS or something, you know, obviously that wouldn't, wouldn't be quite the same because uh, the aperture control would be in the body, right? Um, so anyway, I got a, a, a ZX5, and on the ZX5, I have an RMC Takina 17mm 3.5. So I now have a 17mm uh, Pano, Super Pano camera, <laughs> which is almost like having a um, Super Wide Heliar 15mm dedicated Pano crop. So it's not quite that, and it's not quite that small, but it's really not too bad. I mean, this lens is no, not really any bigger than um, a 50 millimeter lens. It's a little fatter around, but it's really not that much bigger. And it has a really, really good reputation um, for rendering quality. So that's my latest attempt at uh, thinking I don't need an X-Pan is um, my ZX5 with the RMC Takina 17 millimeter coming soon. Pictures of from this crazy combo. I've got most of a roll shot on it, uh, and I can't wait to develop it. As a matter of fact, I might do that today. So, there you have it. So that thing is an SLR. 
Yep. It's an SLR. It's a, it's a 35 millimeter SLR. Um, it, the, the difference is just that it's, it's from very late in the, in the era of film SLRs. It's one of the last ones that Pentax made. Um, but it, the, the thing, like I said, that sets it apart. Most, if you do find a 35 millimeter SLR that does panorama from that era, none of them tend to have a dedicated, you know, uh, manual aperture dial or manual shutter dial. Uh It's, it's all, you know what I mean? It's all, it's all buttons on a pass from dial or something. So it's, so when you have it in pano mode, does it like crop the viewfinder like any other? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It crops the viewfinder. Uh, well, I mean, the thing you'd focus just the way you would on a SLR. I mean, you just turn the ring and it, you know, it focuses. The difference is that there's so much, there's so much depth of field on the 17 millimeter that, oh, right, focus, right. you know, it kind of doesn't even need to be focused. So I tend to set it to like two meters and just shoot because if I stop it down to, you know, let's say F8 at two meters, I've got, you know, depth of field from what infinity to, uh, half a meter. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, so it's just like, you don't, it's really a point and shoot at that point and it's aperture priority. So I can just kind of bang away on it. And yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I I think I'm always going to wish I had an X pan, but I, there's just, I I mean, unless like I win the lottery, there's just no way. So this whole setup cost me less than 150 bucks. Um, and I'm, I'm quite thrilled with it. (laughs) So so we'll see, yeah, where, I mean, it, we'll see it, where it goes it's tough to w- the thing the thing with film slrs is I, I find it personally really challenging to focus quickly on them um so my only other pano camera is that one i mentioned way at the beginning of the show that i've had since i was a kid that that i, I jacked from my dad um the nikon 310 af and it's just an autofocus point and shoot i think i still have film in mine um wow. But like with an X Pen, because it's a rangefinder, I, I just I'm so much more comfortable using rangefinders, which mm-hmm. my friends make make fun of me for, because rangefinders are supposed to be like difficult to focus with and slow and and only for dentists, um, <laughs> <laughs> or 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 people with .edu email addresses. Not like right, anybody we right. not like anybody we know here on this podcast. So you're saying who Carl might not be with us today. X-Pan. <laughs> On the next episode, Carl needs an X Pan, and Carl needs a an M, a Leica M camera. Yes. Oh, you know what I did with my X Pan? I took one of those um, rubber focus tabs uh, that stick on with double sided tape, and I stuck it on the lens, and it handles so much better now. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, because then you just got this sweet focus tab that you can. Because um, one of the things I love about rangefinders is, you know, you can you can focus by feel. Yeah. And right. the technique that I I was taught was always rack the lens to infinity and then just go in one direction. And so when you get like uh, the, the split image coincide with your subject, hit the, mm-hmm. hit the shutter in one motion with the focusing movement. So you're not kind of, you know, messing around and going back and forth. So the tab is, it makes it really easy to do that. Once you get it, once you sort of learn, yeah, uh, that's feel the distance that he puts. That's kind of the Gary, Gary Winogrand style. He, he, if you, maybe I can find it a little video clip of him shooting, but he had this, he had this really weird technique and he always shot a 28 millimeter on like a M4, mm-hmm. uh, M42. And, and, and he would do this really weird kind of motion where he would focus and shoot all at once. And he almost looked like he was adjusting his glasses or something. <laughs> and mm. it's, it's like the weirdest, like you wouldn't even know that he actually pressed the shutter. 
um because he had just kind of this one all-in-one motion but i i kind of feel the same way like the the the, the way i do it is i i tend to have on a, like a Barnett camera with a focus tab. Um, if the focus tab is, is right at the bottom. Um, yeah. It's like one meter, one and a half meters. Yeah. And so like, I know that if I've got my, um, I'm just going to grab my, I know that if I've got my focus tab directly below the lens, like, like straight below the lens, I'm at like three meters. And if I'm at F8, that's generally a pretty good starting point. And then if I have like a closer shot, I need to do of someone on the street, I can rack the focus tab over to like the 45 degree angle without even looking at the lens barrel. And now my focus is set between uh, like four to five uh, feet. And so I know that if I have a subject that is close in front of me, I just have to turn that by feel and it's going to probably be basically in focus. So without ever like really looking at, I mean, it's like faster than autofocus, you know? Exactly. I mean, that's it's this the, the reason I hate infinity locks is because of that way of focusing. So, like <laughs> with that Canon fifty one point two, I shoved a toothpick under the um, the infinity. Yeah, the, mine's like mine's that, mine's set up the same way <laughs> with the toothpick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it, it works perfectly. It's a shame you can't do that on anything else. Yeah, but the focusing I, by I, feel, the reason it's better than autofocus, I think, is. If you're off with autofocus, it can be you can have your subject like two meters in front of you, and then yeah. the, if you you miss your autofocus point, then it's focused like somewhere you know at infinity. Whereas if I'm off with a rangefinder, yeah. I know that I'm going to be close enough, and that my depth of right. field is probably going to be uh, big enough that ev- that it's going to be an acceptable image, right? Because like yeah, exactly. who shoots at f o point nine five on right. the street? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm I'm just listening to this and I'm I'm, I'm, I'm I just don't get rangefinders. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm I'm thinking why. I know you you just made a the, a, a good point there at the end, uh, Perry, about um, autofocus. But I'm I'm there thinking I'd I'd just rather go out with a with a point and shoot camera with a a 28 millimeter or 35 millimeter lens and just just take the shot. Yeah, it just seems like there's just too much hassle with the rangefinder. I, I mean, and the other side of it is, it's like, well, people say, well, put it f eight and uh, have and work off hyperfocal distance and all that kind of stuff. I'm thinking, well, to me, that's almost like defeating the object. You know, um, using these beautiful lenses, but you're just um, <laughs> putting it, put the lens at its sharpest point, and, and I'm thinking, well. Why don't you just use a point and shoot camera? Because it'll do. It'll, it's going to do more or less the same exposure, anyway, isn't it? Am I missing? Am I missing something there? Well, but I would, I would maybe argue that um, you just have a lot more control with a rangefinder. I mean, you you know, you're with most point and shoots, with a few exceptions, you don't have a lot of control over exposure, and you don't have a lot of control over focus. Now, some of them, I, I mean. I have a I have a a point and shoot that does have that control. I have a, it's a Rolly um, 35 AFM, and it will actually. It's, let me grab it. Uh, you can actually set it to zone focus. Now it has an it does have an AF mode, but there's a little dial on the front, and you can set it in meters to specific distances, and then it really will be like kind of locked at that focus point. Um, and you can also choose the aperture. So you can shoot this thing, you know, either a full program or you can essentially shoot it, you know, aperture priority and it'll do that. But that's really unusual for a point and shoot. Most, most of them 
don't have that kind of capability. I, I, I agree. And I, I don't have a, a point and shoot as sophisticated as that. And that's absolutely the my ideal camera of, of, of that, that genre, not necessarily specifically that particular one, because there's a, yeah. a, f- a few of them out there. And actually, oddly enough, I seem to be drawn to the Minolta one. I think it's the TC1. Yeah. Uh huh. Right. You can do a similar. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I. I don't know. I. I. I think that there's just. I think again, it comes down to the thing that Perry was saying is that the camera really does make a difference, and there are shots that I get with point and shoots. Like I have a T4, um, Yashica T4 that a friend gave me. I did not buy it. It came to me for free. <laughs> I'm just gonna say because I never would have been able to buy one. Um, but I really like that camera with uh Cinestill in it like for um Cinestill 800 and I'll, I'll use it in like these like you know dim light situations like where it the sun is like mostly down and I've got a mixture of street light and like lights from you know windows and and buildings and all that and it works really well for that but I wouldn't want to just use it as my only primary camera because I feel like there are too many things that I really wouldn't get because it's going to autofocus and it, the focus point that it's going to pick might not be the focus point that I, I would want to pick. And it would be a little bit maddening to have that be like the only, you know, the only camera I had at hand, I guess, but I really do like it at at the the other token. I wouldn't necessarily want to try to take those shots with one of my range finders in, you know, in bad light like that. I'd rather at that point, just grab a quick shot with the Yashica. So it, I don't know. It really depends on the situation. Um, and I, I do like having the, you know, the, the uh, that element of control over how I want to make the image that I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to be kind of fighting the point and shoot at, at some point to be able to do that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also really fun. You know, I, I find rangefinders deeply entertaining to use. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and size <laughs> is a big uh, factor as well. If, if you want that control, and you're picking between, you know, an SLR. I mean, you've, you've got like the OM-1 and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, rangefinders are smaller. And, and one of the things that I think, um, if you're shooting a Leica, you know, I, I personally, I like the Zeiss lenses way better than Leicas when it comes to rendering. But oh, yeah. the one thing that I think Leicas have going for them is they're tiny. Yeah. Uh, that Leica 35 F4, uh, F2 Simicron version 4 is like, it's 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 so small. And so that thing, I can just yeah. kind of shove it in a bag and I can't fit an SLR with a big lens sticking out of it. Uh, right. It has back to bag. And I, the other thing I will say in defense of rangefinders, having been most of my life an SLR shooter, um, is that my eyes suck now <laughs> and I can, yeah. I just can't get uh, well-focused shots for the most part anymore on SLRs. <laughs> so, which yeah, is, me too. which, yeah, which is much easier to do in a rangefinder. It just is. Yeah. Um, Especially so if I the mean, patch is nice and clear. Right. Right. So, I mean, I, I basically, my SLRs at this point are just for those rare times. I want to shoot 50 millimeters and above, which I'd rather do on an SLR still in a rangefinder. Um, oh yeah. But yeah, my eyes just, uh, they just don't really, uh, I can't really do SLRs anymore for the most part. So, it's interesting you say that because um, Hamish uh, Hamish Gill did a, a piece a few weeks ago in 35 MMC um, where he had to go using a, an Olympus camera. I can't remember if it was an OM10. I think it was an OM10 he, he used, and, uh, yeah. and then people and he struggled with it. And I think somebody sent him a, a, an OM2. Um, not sure if that was Fraser Yule actually that sent it to him. Anyway, uh, but the, the 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 point is he um, has problems with his eyes. 
and mm. uh, he again he he finds uh, rangefinders far easier to work. Although, uh, interestingly enough, he, he did seem to find that using a, an SLR was actually the experience was better for him than he than he remembered the last time and it's uh, huh. a lot of these things come down to practice i guess as well yeah that's true too yeah. no doubt about it yeah well yeah. are you we're we're pretty much about halfway through the letter <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, we've we've been going in some time so i i think um uh, Perry, if you're happy to do this, I'd I'd like to get you back in the uh, for uh, not get you back <laughs> for for coming on. Um, get you uh, back for another podcast at some some time in the future because there's lots of things on this this email which uh, you know talks about um, Alpa Kern macro switar lenses and things like that. Yeah. which, uh, which um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I really I really want to talk about, but I, I feel that we're going to. Uh, a lot of these things are going to get squeezed now. So yeah. What, I, yeah. what I want to do is, is to start to wind the show down uh, a little bit and uh, with a view to you coming back at a, at a, for, for a future episode and perhaps we might send you to a desert island or something like that. Perhaps. Yeah. yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, if you're going to do that to me, you've got to give me some time to <laughs> because if you put me on the spot for that, uh, I'm going to tell you like one lens I'm bringing for sure, uh, the ZM Sonar 51.5 and then the rest like, Give me at least a week to think. About. <laughs> yeah. Can I can I throw one more question at, at Perry? Yeah, go for it. Um, so Perry, I, I in one of the topics here in your email, you mentioned that, um, or have you? Okay, you mentioned this um, developing XP two in black and white chemistry. Is that something yeah. you have done or you want to do? Oh, I've done it a ton. Um, you have okay. Um, what can I yeah, ask? What 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 have what developer have you been using, and what's your experience been? Yeah, the the reason I I, I actually posted a bunch of pictures in the group recently um, with exactly that. Oh, great! And the okay. reason I ha I have it is um, I got a bunch of XP two for cheap. Basically, some dude was selling it. And I was like, yeah, I'll take it. And um, it honestly, I think the results are nicer than C forty one processing. Hmm. Uh, I use I use HC one ten. Okay. Because it's it lasts forever, basically. Yeah, and my experience with it is it's great. Um, what I what I, one thing that I really like about what I'm getting, and I don't know if this is the film, uh, the way I'm developing it or, or whatever, is I'm getting zero curl on my negatives, and that's one huh. thing that sort of really pisses me off when I develop a roll and then I take it off the drying thing that I have in my bathroom, and it just like curls up. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it looks great. The tones are are. Uh, really sort of subtle. Um, it's not super high contrast. I know you like high contrast, but like the detail is there. Um, so you can, you can jack up the contrast if you want. And uh, yeah. I'm really happy with the results. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm looking at some of your shots now. They look really good. I just, I use that film like all the time. I use it in my crop panoramas because, mm -hmm. you know, I am a huge fan of film grain, but in crop panoramas, because you're already like using a smaller part of the negative, like the grain, I don't want to say it would be excessive because I'd probably still like it, but it's too like weirdly obvious if that makes any sense. Like it, yeah. I don't mind it on a 35 full 35 millimeter frame, but on a crop frame like that, it's just, it doesn't feel like a great con. So no, anyway, it's magnified. I, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't necessarily mind, but it would do things I wouldn't always want it to do, but I, Oh my God. I love that film in my crop panoramas. And mm -hmm. so I've, I shoot loads of it. And so I've wondered about, cause you know, developing in color chemistry is not really 
a big deal, but it, it just, it would at times be more convenient to do it in traditional black and white chemistry. So it's something I've, I've wanted to experiment with. So I'll, I'll take the, a good, take a good look at your shots and get some ideas for sure. I've got both. Um, I mean, I have C41 chemicals at home mm-hmm. and the reason why I do it in black and white chemistry is like partly because of the results, but mostly because I'm lazy yeah, and you right. know, I can't be bothered to get the temperature right. So I'll just like <laughs> mix up some black and white chemistry and then take the temperature. It'll be 20 something. And then, right. you know, any, for any listeners who, who don't know this website, if you want to develop your own film, black and white film, you, you need to bookmark massive dev chart. Yeah. yeah. Because that just gives you every like film and developer combination. And then there's a time and temperature converter. So you don't have to be at exactly 20 degrees Celsius each time. So I just went on there. I found HC110 plus XP2, uh, converted the time to whatever temperature my tap water was on that given day. And uh, yeah, it works great. It's, it's really nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, I, I want to give a shout out since we're kind of on the subject. And then I, I, I think actually, we're going to wrap uh, jo- up. Johnny, before yeah. you uh, do the, yeah. the shout out there, um, I'm just curious about what you use for uh, XP2. Well, I do it in C41 um, and I do it in, so I, so I have a batch of C41 chemistry that's almost a year old that's had about 40 rolls of film put through it and it ain't done yet. It's still going. <laughs> um, but I, but I don't, I don't know that I would trust it for color C41 at this no, point, no. <laughs> but for X-Pan, it, it's, it's still rocking. It's great. X-Pan, so, or, or for not for X-Pan, yeah. I'm sorry, for, for yeah. you know. Who's got for, X-Pan um, on the brain. <laughs> yeah, I have X-Pan on the brain. Yeah. No, for XP2, it's, it's, it's great because it doesn't really matter if the color balance is good or not. It's just, will it actually develop the film? Um, so, uh, you know, that's, I'm still kind of running it, but only, only for the XP two. Um, but I, 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 I agree with Perry. I mean, I have like, you don't understand. I have like probably 35 rolls of XP two that I need to catch up on. And it would at times be more convenient to do it in regular black, white chemistry. But I, I do want to give a shout out to the good folks at Cinestill. Um, and I had a quick chat about this with, uh, with, with Andre, um, because they, and their new, um, unicolor kit, well, they, they don't say it's unicolor, but it is any, every, every C41 kit is essentially unicolor at this point. Um, but it's the, the dry chemical kit, um, that they sell, uh, you know, branded under Cinestill, but the tech sheet that they put in with that is freaking awesome because it has temperature time combinations going down to like 72 degrees for c41 and it also has push pull times <laughs> up to like oh. three stops yeah no i'm serious it's it's nuts and i think what i'll do is maybe put a uh, a link to that um because it's the same you can use anybody's c41 kit and it's going to be the same pretty much as long as it's the same yeah. uh you know number of uh chemicals in the kit right um but it's really awesome. So I have that chart and um, I'm going to mess around because last time I did C41, I did it at, I think, 90 degrees, which is just a little bit easier to hold steady than 102 or whatever. So so have you have you ever tried to – I've either – well, it sounds like um, you haven't, Johnny. Uh, but um, Perry, have you, have you tried to use Rodinol uh, for XP2? No, I um last time I used Rodinol was was in uh my my university photo lab because they just had it there for free for everyone. No, no, I pretty much exclusively use HC one ten. Um just because I buy one bottle of it and the stuff lasts me like years. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, it's I, it's I, the I, same it's the same ethos as Rodinol. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and that's what I'm trying to figure out is can I run it in in Rodinol because as I've said 
Road and Ollie is the longest monogamous relationship of my life. And I would feel really bad if HC 110, I started cheating on my Road and Ollie. So I got <laughs> to figure you, out. Have you tried I, uh, stand developing it? Uh, I'm not a big proponent of stand developing. I know people think <laughs> it it's like, you know, the, the, the magic thing. But I, I what I don't get is why I want to everybody's oh it's easier you just put it in and let it sit well yeah you and then you got an hour later you have to come screw around with it and you still yeah. have to do time you know you oh, still I've have never to time done your fixer for exactly that reason yeah yeah i'm like what the what the fuck? i'd rather just do have it and get it all done in 20 minutes you know exactly. i just don't get it yeah. i'd rather would just do it at time and temperature and it ch- turns out just as well <laughs> so whatever yeah. but that's just me so i no i don't do a lot of stand developing I, I it's good for slower speed films but it's also not good for higher speed films like i i my go-to film is black and white it typically is um uh tri-x shot at 800 and mm-hmm. stand developing 400 speed films not great in my opinion i don't think it looks great but that's just me so anyway um yeah no i don't do that cool. i've never done it probably won't try <laughs> yeah it's I think it's a little over overhyped. Yeah. Anyway, well, you'd be glad to know I've I've started to uh, move away from stand development now, um, and it's, <laughs> it's I mean, it, it, and, and the point is well made there because I I, th- I think to myself, well, if I do um, say one one to fifty or or one to twenty five or something like that in, in Rodinol, um, I have to be with it and uh, yeah. for, for the period of time, but the, it's done with isn't it right yeah, it's done you're yeah. done so i'm fine yes i've got to put it's more intensive but it's 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 right. over with 45 minutes before it would have been with the other way so, uh, <laughs> exactly yeah yeah, yeah so, agitating is not a huge amount of effort no 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 and i mean when i agitate rodinol it's like you know if i'm developing something for let's say you know 11 minutes i agitate for 30 seconds and then i'll Agitate. I literally do one gentle inversion, up, down, twist. Yeah. I do one a minute, maybe, and, or I do one every other minute. So it's like I, the I'm doing like a total of like ten agitations the entire developing process, you know. So anyway, yeah. Topic for another day. Yeah, it, it may, <laughs> may may well be actually. And actually, we were gonna. I remember when last time we had M on the show. Uh, we did say that uh, we were going to get him back and we were going to talk a, a bit more about development. Um, and uh, actually, that reminds me. Uh, M is uh, the current guest on uh, the Negative Positives podcast at the moment, episode 210, I think it is. And uh, uh, and I, I had a listen to that this morning. Um, and uh, M came out with a, an, in- an interesting quote. Uh, because, oh, here uh, we go. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on to your seat, folks. Here it comes. Yeah. Well, yeah. M, M made the comment. It was he was he was uh, talk talking. Well, he mentioned the Classic Lenses podcast, um, and M knows a lot about podcasts, of course, because he is a podcast tart. He's on been on podcast. everyone out there, um, including his own. And, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I shouldn't have said that because he's been really nice to me. Um, um, and anyway, he mentioned the Classic Lenses podcast, and uh, and he he said that uh, that I am the most um, I can't remember the exact words, but I am the most film focused or analog focused uh, member of the Classic Lenses podcast. Which uh, when he actually was talking to Mike, I, I was thinking, 
What? <laughs> What's he saying there? Has he got? Does he not listen? Has <laughs> he? Has he, uh, he, he got me confused? And then he carried. Oh. Then Mike sort of challenged him on it. Um, you know, it was on the lines of, "Are you sure you're not talking about Johnny there?" Something on those lines. And uh, and he explained that no, no, uh, because because I have a I have this new love for film, and um, I think it's, it's something on the lines of uh, new love is stronger than uh, your old love that you've been doing it for thirty years and all this kind of stuff. And it uh, whereas. Um, and, and it's like it's new to me, and everything's all wonderful with film. So, uh, well, um, um, I, I hope you enjoy the really great uh, bottle of, of whiskey that you bought with the money that Simon sent you to make that comment, and, and that you had a really nice dinner at Simon's expense as well. So, I totally agree with them. Yes, yeah. um, and I actually I think I I also also mentioned um, I'm going to give myself a shout out uh, because the reason why um, we we came up um, was largely because um, uh, Mike uh, broke the news to the world uh, that there's a new podcast that's going to be coming soon and it's called the Large Format Photography Podcast, which Yay. pretty much says everything you need to know about it. Um, and that podcast is going to be made by Andrew Bartram um, of the Lensless Podcast and, uh, and me. And uh, we're going to start, we're going to be recording it uh, at the end of this week. And Johnny's making a logo for us. I'm making, I'm making a logo. And you know why I'm laughing? Because the joke going around is that at least one person on that podcast will know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And, and that's, and that is the whole, that's the whole idea of the podcast. Because, uh, Andrew knows everything. I know nothing. I, and... I no, I think it is a great concept, Simon. I really do. <laughs> I do seriously. It's very cool. Well, the the, the idea behind it is that um, we we want to uh, get people interested in large format photography, and it's a it's a subject that when people you know you might know about photography and you might understand film photography and you might have a good grasp of medium format photography, but when it gets to large format, uh, it's it's a whole it can be really bewildering. Um, and then when you finally get your head around it and if you get hold of a camera and you actually do something with it, at first you think, oh, I get this. And then the next thing is, oh, no, I don't. Uh, because there are just so <laughs> many things that are just radically different. Um, and it can put a lot of people off. And uh, so hopefully my um, lack of knowledge and Andrew's uh, font of all knowledge uh, combined along with the along with guests um, is going to be able to help people to get interested in large format photography. Cool. So there we go. Um, there we go. Yeah. So anyway, we've, we've, we've just been talking a lot there um, and we've left Perry on, on one side. Um, no, no, I'm <laughs> silent because I have a friend who's trying to pressure me into getting a large format camera and I, I, I don't want to. And I'm not going to do that <laughs> podcast because it's going to give me gas. <laughs> well, well, um, Perry, I, I, I want to. Um, we're going to do some shout outs and give the opportunity and stuff. But I just, just want to say, uh, what, a, what a great chat that uh, we've, we've we've had today. Um, really enjoyed having you with the podcast, and it, and uh, I'm glad that you've already said yes that you're going to come back again at some points in the future. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I, I love listening to the podcast, and I mean, what's better than talking about lenses for a couple yeah. hours? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't get any better than that, uh, apart from an occasional chat about large format photography, which, uh, <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, Carl's not here to go. With two seasoned experts. Yeah. I was just, just thinking, I was just thinking about 
when I when I do talk about large format, uh, Carl sort of completely zones out of the conversation. Which uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just I've, I've just been reading again on the Negative Positives um, Film Photography Podcast page or whatever they're calling it this week, uh, because it does change. Um, and um, and there's uh, apparently because I, I I've only listened to like the first twenty minutes of uh, this week's show, but apparently Andre goes to sleep. <laughs> and you can hear him snoring in the background, um, <laughs> apparently. So, uh, <laughs> I must have been when Mike was talking about APS. <laughs> no, no, that's an interesting subject. Obviously, uh, the APS revival is a thing. So, um, so no, that couldn't possibly be the. Uh, no, be not the possibly. Not possibly. <laughs> so, uh, so no, that, that's I've got, I've got that to look forward to listening to at the moment. Um, so, um, let's do some shout outs. Uh, Johnny, have you got any shout outs? Oh, I probably do, but I'm just, I'm so unprepared. Oh, you've got an email shout out, Johnny. I do have an email shout out. You do? I do? You do? I do. Well, 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 well you go looking for the email that I sent uh, Okay. You All right. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I will do, um, I'll okay. do on I'll do my little bit on coffee uh, because okay. uh, we've had some donations this week, including um, from the one from the person that you're going to read an email from and that would be bob matter um, oh did you forward this to me i'm looking and i don't see anything oh i sent it yesterday um, oh. I'll, I'll send it again if you can't find it while i'm while i'm talking all right um, i'm looking but, but uh, look bob says uh barkeep for for another round of coffee uh, for the three gents who continue to make my mondays tolerable <laughs> so uh, yeah, anything we can do to make monday <laughs> thank you bob. thank you bob bob's awesome I see Bob more than I see my family members. He's great. <laughs> um, I'm looking and I don't see it, Simon. But then again, you have to remember my email. Hold on. I'll tell you what my inbox says here. My Gmail uh, inbox number is 72,569 unread emails. So <laughs> it's in there somewhere, but I'm probably not going to find it if it's more than one scroll down the page. Yeah, well, it's it's winged its way across the Atlantic. Is it as, okay? As, as, as All right, speak. very so I'll, good. I'll just do very do a, a few more coffees because we've we've uh, had a few this week. Um, we had from Anon. Uh, who didn't leave a message, uh, but thank you all the same. Uh, that was uh, that was very good of you. Um, and uh, who else have we had? There? Uh, Nigel Cliff. Uh, who I bumped into yesterday at the Wolverhampton Camera Fair, funnily enough. Um, he said, uh, another cracking show and listening to Lyndon. By the way, you said Lyden, I think, earlier. But uh, Oh, did uh, I? I'm sorry. Yeah. Lyndon, right? Yeah, um, Barry Lyndon. Yeah. That's it. So, uh, <laughs> listening to... Uh, <laughs> Lyndon since, Baines Johnson, yeah, joining us from Devon. I'm going to have to find this now. But uh, <laughs> on um, somebody commented on the... Uh, podcast post uh, for for that episode. Um, it just dropped a post a, a comment today. Uh, who was it now? Because you you sent me a few uh, very uh, dodgy links uh, to go with that episode with like Barry <laughs> Lyndon and play. Oh yes, yeah, se right. several several plays on uh, Lyndon's all, all the people I was thinking of is is, yeah, is Lyndon was talking. Uh, so uh, Thomas uh, Chagall. Um, said that uh, the, the the Barry White uh, link uh, sold him on the podcast. So, uh, so, so yeah, outstanding, great great ways to bring new people into the podcast. Um, outstanding. So uh, other other ones. So we've had Nigel. Cl oh, I didn't actually finish. Uh, and so another cracking show. And listening to Lyndon reminds me I need to stop cleaning my lenses with a Brillo pad. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, yes, do do stop that. I think the only uh, official way of using abrasive is putting wet sand in a sock and uh, wiping it. That's the only hands. approved classic <laughs> lenses podcast method. That is yeah. true. And that yes, really, this- you only should do that on Jupiter 3s, uh, to be specific. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, so yeah. a, a sand-socked Jupiter 3 is the only way to go. Yeah, um, most definitely. And then we've got something from Nigel Stanley. Um, uh, worth it for the Zippo tip. Um, and uh, um, and what's it saying here? Um, uh, and basically what and what to do with other other tips and what to do with the tinner lighter fluid. And just just as a, a point on that one, um, we did talk about Zippo and, and lighter fluid. And Zippo is what you shouldn't use. Don't use Zippo. Uh, just use uh, normal lighter fluid because there's some kind of uh, lubricants in Zippo, so it can leave a residue. So uh, leave the Zippo, Nigel, and just go with the normal stuff. Um, then we also had, uh, actually, no, we had one, one more specific one. That was from, uh, actually, usually we, we get a, a message or a letter uh, from him from mflenses.com where we have a thread. And it's, and Carl can't usually, no, sorry, Johnny can't usually say it. And I'm not, I'm about to not properly say it. And that's Sialist, I think is uh, what it is. So uh, Sialist um, sent us uh, a donation so thank you very much for that didn't leave a message but he did comment on the podcast last week uh, saying that he, he really enjoyed listening to it with uh, with Lyndon and uh, criticised uh, I, I think it was me I think I might have been the one that uh, cut him off but uh, um, and Lyndon was going to tell some story about radioactivity and we never got to hear it so quiet on that phone sorry about that um so uh, one day perhaps we'll get lyndon back and we can hear the the, the radioactive yeah. story um that'd be great and then uh, just two other mentions there um uh, lawrence dunn uh, thank you again for your donation and the same goes for james thorpe as well so uh, um those two uh, fine gentlemen um have a recurring payment to us so that's that's really really helpful so uh, thank you thank you thank you Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, and I do have the Bob Matter email, which Good. I will I will read right now. Uh, it says, Johnny, please announce the biopic Maplethorpe uh, playing at Cisco Film Center. That's here in Chicago through March 7th. Uh, after the 3, 6, 6 p.m. screening, there will be a discussion. Uh, apologize for not emailing this to you last week. I was sick and sleeping most of the time. Regards, Bob Matter. So, um yeah, this is playing the Maplethorpe, you know, about photographer Robert Maplethorpe is playing here in Chicago at the Cisco Film Center. I'm sure it's playing elsewhere uh, out in the world as well. Um, but I know the um, there's a Chicago uh, street photographers group that usually hits up these things all together on a certain day. Um, and I'm not sure. I know Bob was organizing an outing for that. So there may be one here locally, but check it out um, at a theater near you. Okay, and uh, I've just got a couple more uh, shout-outs. Uh, one um, to Karen Adams, uh, Karen Aarons, who I met at the uh, Wolverhampton Camera Fair yesterday. Um, great to meet you. And uh, Karen is going to be setting up a um, Classic Lenses photo walk in Manchester, probably in the spring. So uh, looking forward to, to that happening, and that will be one that I will be able to make it to. Um, and then one other um shout out and that's it that goes to uh nick and graham um on the homemade camera podcast um, and i'm working my way slowly through their episodes and, and you know i think if you're if you're vaguely technically minded which is pretty much me 
it's a great listen because they they talk about a lot of very technical issues and they they make most of it um, understandable to people like me. So uh, um, it's well worth listening to, to to Nick and Graham, who I'm actually convinced it's if you if you're wondering what happened to the the guys from MythBusters because uh, that that program finished uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I think Nick and Graham are actually the MythBusters. Um, I just changed their name. So if you listen to them, they are the Mythbusters. And uh, it's worth listening to the current episode. Oh, I can't remember which one it is. But um, in, certainly within part of that episode, they talk about our interview with um, Raffaello Palandri. Um, and they talk about the Ponth camera or Ponth camera. Um, and they, they're looking at it from, a, from a, a more technical point of view. So they've explored some of the things that we touched upon and took those uh, a little bit further. So I think that's, that's well worth a listen to that one. So uh, Very they, good. They're, they're my shout out. So uh, um, Perry, um, I don't know if you've got any shout outs or do you want to just tell us where people can follow you and stuff? It's, it's up to you. Yeah, no shout outs off the top of my head, except to all of the film shooters and dealers here in Hong Kong. Uh, you can find me on my Flickr page, which is just flickr.com slash photos slash Perry G, which is spelled P-E-R-R-Y-G-E. And you can also find me on my website, but I haven't updated that in like a year. So I don't actually remember the URL, but I think if you Google my name, it pops up. <laughs> and I'm also uh, quite active in the Facebook group. So if you're ever in Hong Kong, uh, or you want to shoot me any questions, send me a message. Um, a couple of people have messaged me. Someone, someone asked me about pushing Kentmere uh, just this morning. So oh, cool. yeah, I'm always happy to chat, answer questions. Cool. That's great. Well, thank you again for, for being on the show. It's been, been, a, been a pleasure having you here. Absolutely. No problem. It's been a ton of fun. Yep. That's it. So uh, Johnny, uh, how can people keep up with you away from this podcast? Um, well, you can you can find me on Instagram. I have not posted on Instagram almost since January. And the reason why, should I go ahead and just announce this now, Simon? I mean Yeah, go for it. Um and the reason why is I've had my nose buried deep into building um the new Classic Lenses podcast website, which um kind of uh failed spectacularly because uh, uh, I can't even say WordPress. I'm sorry, WordPress.org. You just blow. You suck, and I hate you. And I, I, I know you're amazing, but you suck. So I should have done this on WordPress.com and saved myself a lot of trouble uh, because the server side bullshit. I want no part of it. I have no patience for it. So anyway, um, that crashed and burned after weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of work, which is really frustrating. So I have not been doing any film processing. I've not been doing any uh, making any images. I've been shooting, and that's about it. So I'm going to get back into the world of doing this because um, once I said screw it and um, decided to use the tools available at our podcast host, which is Podbean, to just essentially build a website there until we do something bigger and better. Um, that is up and running and it took me about six hours. So six weeks wasted, six hours of, of, uh, of, of good times coming together. And we, we can now send you to our website uh, for the podcast, which is classiclensespodcast.com. So you will find 
the episodes there, including this episode, um, which uh, you you may be listening to it uh, over on the new website as we speak. Um, so uh, classiclensespodcast.com is is the new home, official home for the podcast. Um, we're still working on how we're going to disseminate um, show notes and links and so forth. Um, I got a couple ideas about that we're going to talk about offline, but I think one of the ways we're going to do that is we are going to have you uh, sign up on the website to receive the email, which you will get an email each week that has the podcast in it with all the notes. How about that? Isn't that cool? So um, you'll be able to do that uh, there on the website. I'm going to actually try to have that put together uh, by the time this this goes live. Uh, but that's the big news is the podcast um, website is up and running. Um, and it's my fault. It's taken so long. I take all the blame. And if you don't like it, that's my fault too. So <laughs> don't blame the guys. You can blame me. Um, <laughs> so there's that. Um, you can also send us an email. Well, you'll be able to send us a damn email right there on the website. Uh, but you can also send us an email directly, um, at, uh, classic lenses podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram where I will be posting things again now that I have my life back. Um, and I'm, I'm at system photography on Instagram. You can also find me uh, every day of the week, except for Sunday and Monday um, at central camera company here in Chicago, live and in person. Um, and you should be following best vintage lens over on Instagram. Uh, they are posting, they repost the podcast there each week and they post the best of uh photos shot with classic lenses there in their instagram account um you can also tag your images with hashtag classic lens is or a classic lens and best and also hashtag best vintage lens um and they pull from images there to be featured on the best vintage lens instagram uh page it's 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 got to be said that if you if you don't want to spend uh, an hour and a half to two hours listening to us just go to Best Vintage Lens and read yeah. what Ricardo has written. Uh, exactly. The whole show is there, yep. <laughs> yeah, including spoilers. You know? yep. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, all, that's pretty much all you need to do. Uh, so, exactly. Uh, really quickly on Best Vintage Lens, did you guys see that Biotar tattoo? Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was great. That was great. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Yeah, they were, they were, they were, well, I, I did mention on, on, on that, on that one on the, on the uh, Instagram feed that uh, I, it would be my worst nightmare to actually wake up with one of those tattoos um, except with it being a, a, a test right you would get a test yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. That, that's pretty much the plan if Simon ever visits Chicago is I'm going to get him super drunk and I'm going to get him test our tattoo <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, and, and to quote Ricardo I think it'll be on my butt <laughs> so, absolutely <laughs> absolutely it would be yeah. So um, okay, on on that on that thought. Now <laughs> that <laughs> we're thinking about Simon's ass. Yeah. Um, if you want to, uh, oh dear, how do I follow that? Um, well, anyway, if you if you if you want to see what things that I'm I'm up to, um, I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. I'm on a on Twitter as uh, Simon Four. This um, that's Simon F O R. Um, I have a website which is simonforsterphotographic.co.uk uh, you can search my ebay account uh, for it's fozzy that's i-t-s-f-o-z-z-y and ooh, 
I don't I think I'll probably get one more podcast in before the new large format photography podcast goes out but who knows I'm not sure when we're going to when we're going to send that one out but that's a podcast that's going to be coming coming soon and I'll probably mention again next week uh, and every week after that um, <laughs> so uh, um, one last thing uh, is just to thank Kevin McLeod for our theme music um, and uh, I was having a little chat to uh, to Graham of the of the sort of 16 podcast on his um, their latest uh, secondary podcast uh, which is the uh, backing paper podcast where he described our theme music as jazz um, <laughs> come on <laughs> it's it's not jazz it's blues and it's cool just like classic lenses and this show um, yeah there's a there's always that little bit of melancholy with uh, with with lenses isn't there really so we're, we we want the next one and then, that melancholy is your bank account yeah ex- exactly <laughs> yes <laughs> so, uh, so, so, so there we go. So, thanks to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, and uh, that's it for this week's show. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it, and it'd be great if you can join us again next week. So, thank you and goodbye. Yeah, that's what I was gonna. That's what I was gonna mention my extreme dedication to the podcast. Oh, that's why I left. That's why I left Toronto. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's something you can you can help me with, uh, because in in America and Canada, um, when I've been in in Canada, I'll be asked if I want a coffee, and I'll say yes, and then the next question is uh, cream and sugar, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm there thinking, well, yeah, I get the sugar bit, and I don't want any of that, but cream. I mean, yeah, cream. Is that, is that yeah. cream or is that milk or is that literally no, no, it's cream? No, I I, I, I I put heavy cream in mine. Like I don't f- around. I, I none of the, none of that half and half stuff. I, I heavy. I put heavy whipping cream in my coffee. Yeah. That's I mean, I in, in Canada, the standard Tim Hortons order is a double double, which is a double cream, double sugar. <laughs> well, Perry, you're bilingual Celsius and Fahrenheit. It sounds like. Dude, what? No, I don't use Fahrenheit. Um, only your country does. <laughs> Although I had an American friend explain to me the logic behind Fahrenheit last year, and I, I kind of got yeah, it. How did that go? No, no, no. He got it. I got it. He was like, "Look, fifty is comfortable, zero is f- cold, and a hundred is f- hot." I was like, "That's actually yeah, that's kinda that's, that's actually that's that is true." <laughs> <laughs>